أعوذ بالله من الشيطان الرجيم بسم الله الرحمن الرحيم الحمد لله نحمده ونستعينه ونستغفره ونؤمن به ونتوكل عليه ونعوذ بالله من شرور أنفسنا ومن سيئات أعمالنا من يهده الله فلا مضل له ومن يضلله فلا هادي له ونشهد أن لا إله إلا الله وحده لا شريك له ونشهد أن محمدا عبده ورسوله صلى الله تعالى عليه وعلى آله وصحبه وبارك وسلم تسليما كثيرا كثيرا أما بعد فأعوذ بالله من الشيطان الرجيم بسم الله الرحمن الرحيم إن الله وملائكته يصلون على النبي يا أيها الذين آمنوا صلوا عليه وسلموا تسليما اللهم صل على محمد وعلى آل محمد كما صليت على إبراهيم وعلى آل إبراهيم إنك حميد مجيد اللهم بارك على محمد وعلى آل محمد كما باركت على إبراهيم وعلى آل إبراهيم إنك حميد مجيد Respected listeners, Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. We gather once again for the continuing commentary of Surah Al Hajarat, the 49th Surah of the Quran. So far in the preceding weeks, we've completed eight verses. We now continue with the next. Verse. So far, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has, has reminded the believers of the obligation of respecting the Messenger sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, respecting the authority and the position of Allah and His Rasul sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, and of recognizing their own limits. Believers have also been instructed to ascertain the truth and verify facts before relying on reports, especially when it comes to making a judgment or a decision. Following that, we have also been told that Allah, that the Messenger وسلم, is not to be treated as any normal human being. But rather, he is the messenger of Allah. And that the companions, radiyallahu anhum, should not try to, should not persist in their recommendations and their suggestions, nor should they lean upon the Prophet, sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, in any way for him to do their bit. Rather, even when they are consulted, they should respectfully offer their sincere and honest opinion, following which, regardless of whether their opinion is accepted or not, they should submit to the decision of the Prophet And following on after the companions, for us especially, we should recognize the, whether we can recognize or not, we should still accept the wisdom of the teachings of Allah and His Rasul sallallahu alayhi wa sallam and we should try to mould ourselves and shape our lives according to the sunnah of the Messenger sallallahu alayhi wa sallam rather than 
expecting to expecting religion or trying to mould religion to our wishes, whims and desires. I covered all of this in detail. This is, these are the topics that have been discussed so far. Moving on to the next verse. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says in verse number 9, وَإِن طَائِفَتَانِ مِنَ الْمُؤْمِنِينَ اقْتَتَلُوا فَأَصْلِحُوا بَيْنَهُمَا فَإِنْ بَغَتْ إِحْدَاهُمَا عَلَى الْأُخْرَى فَقَاتِلُوا الَّتِي تَبْغِي حَتَّى تَفِيءَ إِلَىٰ أَمْرِ اللَّهِ فَإِنْ فَاءَتْ فَأَصْلِحُوا بَيْنَهُمَا بِالْعَدْلِ وَأَقْصِتُوا إِنَّ اللَّهَ يُحِبُّ الْمُقْصِتِينَ Allah says, and if. Now this is, well let me translate the verse first. وَإِنْ طَائِفَتَانَ And if. Two groups. مِنَ الْمُؤْمِنِينَ اقْتَتَلُوا From the believers. Fight with each other. فَأَصْلِحُوا بَيْنَ أَخَوَيْكُمْ فَأَصْلِحُوا بَيْنَهُمَا Then reconcile the two. فَإِنْ بَغَتْ إِحْدَاهُمَا عَلَى الْأُخْرَى Then if one of the two transgresses against the other, فَقَاتِلُوا الَّتِي تَبْغِي حَتَّى تَفِيءَ إِلَىٰ أَمْرِ اللَّهِ Then fight with the one that rebels. Until it returns, meaning the group, until it returns to the decree of Allah. فَإِنْ فَاءَتْ So if it does return to the command of Allah, then reconcile the two. فَأَصْلِحُوا بَيْنَهُمَا بِالْعَدْلِ then reconcile the two parties, the two groups, with justice. وَأَقْسِطُوا And be just. إِنَّ اللَّهُ يُحِبُّ الْمُقْسِطِينَ Verily, Allah loves the just ones. So that's the translation of the verse. Now as you can tell, this is a departure from the earlier topics. But it fits with the overall theme of the surah. And the theme of the surah is an honest, upright, just, equitable, caring, loving society. And we did see, and history did witness, such a society in Medina. But... It was found because it was only because it was founded on the teachings of Allah and the Sunnah of His Rasul Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam. And prior to speaking about communal justice, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala prefaced that with the necessity of recognizing Allah's position and the position of His Rasul Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam. Having moved on from that topic of the position and the authority of Allah and His Rasul Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam, knowing their position, knowing our limitations, Allah now speaks about conflicts and disputes amongst believers. So Allah says, وَإِن طَائِفَتَانِ Meaning, how should this be addressed? In any society, in any family, 
in any group of individuals. Continuous harmony and agreement without any disruption, disturbance, fluctuation, etc. is impossible. Disagreements, disputes, conflicts, quarrels are an unfortunate fact of life. Believers disagree, families disagree, parents and children disagree, siblings disagree, spouses, partners, husbands and wives disagree. We, for Allah's sake, we as individuals, forget two people we disagree with ourselves. How often do we change our opinions? Which person can guarantee that the opinion they held about any issue, whether it's religious, mundane, secular, social, political, that they still hold on to that opinion and that they've never changed their opinion? No one can guarantee that. So if we can't agree with ourselves, how do we expect others to agree with us? And which one do they agree with? Do they agree with you as you were five years ago? Or do they agree with you as you are now? Or do they agree with you as you may be or will be tomorrow? If you, a few weeks ago, you being who you are, couldn't agree with yourself as you are now, how do you expect others to agree with you? So disagreements are inevitable. What Islam teaches us is how to manage these disagreements. How to manage dispute and conflicts. And not every disagreement has to lead to conflict. In Arabic, the words are very similar, but there is a beautiful, subtle difference. Difference i.e. a difference of opinion, is normally referred to as ikhtilaf. But opposition is referred to as mukhalafa. One does not, one can disagree without opposing. So there can be ikhtilaf without mukhalafa. There can be the ikhtilaf of the minds, the difference of the minds, yet hearts can still agree. We see it all the time. So disagreements are a fact of life, and what religion teaches us is how to manage those disagreements. And the first point is, not every disagreement has to necessarily lead to conflict. Not every ikhtilaf should lead to mukhalafa. Not every difference of opinion should lead to opposition. But unfortunately, things happen. And if ever, and this is a teaching, two groups of believers end up not just quarrelling, but the words here are iqdatalu, which means actual fighting. Then what is to be done? Now, let me speak about the primary meaning of the verse and then the secondary. The primary meaning of the verse is if two groups of Muslims actually engage with each other in battle, in physical fighting, then what should be done? 
According to a number of narrations, there was actually a backdrop to the revelation of this verse. And it was that Imam Bukhari himself relates, and so do others, that the Prophet وسلم, was, it was suggested to him that maybe he should go and see Abdullah ibn Ubay ibn Salul, the lead of the hypocrites. Now, Prophet وسلم, decided to go. Now, allow me to explain the position of Abdullah ibn Ubay ibn Salul. Why did the Prophet agree to visit him? Why did the Messenger give him some recognition and credence? And why was he held in that position? Why wasn't he regarded as an open enemy, similar to the Quraysh of Mecca? The reason was that Abdullah ibn Ubay ibn Salul was a leader of the Khazraj tribe, one of the leaders. He was a leader of one of the clans of the Khazraj tribe. And there were two main tribes in Medina, Aws and Khazraj. And knowing the Arabian tribal structure, they, they never believed in a monarchy per se. So you had families, families were then grouped into clans, clans were then grouped into a tribe, and tribes were grouped into super tribes. So the clans of, there were some clans of Medina that were grouped under the Khazraj tribe. And there were other groups of clans that belonged to the Aus tribe. All of these clans had a particular leader who was first amongst their equals. And this confederation of clan leaders formed the elite of the tribal leadership. And then amongst them there was someone whom they regarded as being the preeminent leader. But he was never treated as a monarch. The leader of the Aus tribe was Sa'd ibn Mu'adh and the leader of the Khazraj tribe was Sa'd ibn Ubadah but that was only after the Prophet came to Medina prior to the arrival of the Prophet in Medina Abdullah ibn Ubay ibn Salul being one of the preeminent clan leaders of the Khazraj leadership he was close to becoming the overall leader of Khazraj and he was a great diplomat undoubtedly he, he was very gifted in many ways, and one of his gifts was diplomacy. So he, Abdullah ibn Uwe ibn Salul, was about to be elected as the preeminent leader in the whole of Medina. And they used to say of him that he was going to become the crowned king of Medina. For the, even though they would regard him as a king, the Arabs were Arabs, so they would still call him by his gunya, never giving him, never give each other titles, but by first name or by the gunya. And this is why Allah tells us at the beginning, uh, sorry, in the Quran, that لا تجعلوا دعاء الرسول بينكم كدعاء بعضكم بعضا. Do not make the address and the call of the messenger amongst you as you make 
the call and address to each other, I, you should speak to him and address him respectfully. Don't just call him Muhammad. Rather, address him by his titles as Allah addresses him by his titles. Allah has never said, Ya Muhammad, in, in, the, in the Quran. It's always, Ya Ayyuhal Rasul, Ya Ayyuhal Nabi, O Prophets, O Messenger, Ya Ayyuhal Muzzammil, Ya Ayyuhal Muddathir. These are very affectionate terms, or one shrouded in a cloak, or one covered in a cloak. So, they, this, even though they would have made him a king, they still referred to him by first name or by his gunya. Now, Abdullah ibn Ubay ibn Salul, when the Prophet ﷺ came to Medina, he, he felt as though his mantle of leadership had been pulled from him, and he had been deprived of his preeminent position by the Prophet ﷺ and his band of followers. This was one of the reasons he was very bitter. Now, he joined the Prophet ﷺ as a supposed Muslim, out of sheer convenience, of course, at the beginning, we, no one would have, well, we, we do not know of it from the very beginning. Later, it became apparent, and especially through the verses of the Qur'an and his subsequent actions. But initially, he, along with others, just joined the Prophet ﷺ as a believer for the sake of convenience. But at heart, he wasn't a believer. And from within, he plotted and schemed and he spared no opportunity in trying to harm the Prophet ﷺ or the believers. Now, in that climate, there was great uncertainty. On the one hand, he appeared to be a Muslim. And he would come to the masjid like the other munafiqun hypocrites. He would pray along with the believers. He would participate in the gatherings of the Prophet ﷺ. He would times be part of the consultation especially when it came to the communal affairs of Medina when it came to security and defense etc especially when Medina was being threatened with an attack so on the one hand he held this apparent position and yet at the same time there were constant rumors about him regarding what he had said and not just rumors but some Sahaba عنهم, would attest that they actually heard him disparage the Prophet وسلم, and the believers speak inappropriately of Allah and his Rasul. But nothing ever stuck on him. And one of the reasons was that he, not, he was very intelligent, he was sharp, smooth tongued, he was a diplomat, but he was a great liar. So, and he was a leader. And this is one of the reasons why. Whenever problems arose, Abdullah ibn Ubay ibn Salul was always defended by those around him. Some of them knowingly that he, had, he was guilty, but they still defended him. And others, very sincerely. Because, like on the occasion of uh, Zayd radiallahu an, when he, when he heard Abdullah ibn Ubay ibn Salul speaking disparagingly of the Prophet when he reported him, the other, other senior, sincere Sahaba عنهم, actually said to the Prophet وسلم, that he is a leader amongst us and we cannot believe that he would use such language. So some of them were genuinely, sincerely 
incredulous. They couldn't believe that Abdullah ibn Ubay ibn Sal would speak in that manner. So there was always this confusion. And because of his position as a leader, he was always treated well by the others and the Prophet except on rare occasions when uh, some of his guilt showed through and some of the Sahaba wished to take him to task. But because he was a leader, the matter was always played down. So on one such occasion, the Prophet وسلم, it was suggested to him by the, some of the Sahaba that why don't we go and meet Abdullah ibn Ubay ibn Salul? And he had great influence. This is why in the third year of Hijrah, and this is what I meant that he was part of the consultation, when the Quraysh were about to attack Medina, Prophet وسلم, held a council. And in there they discussed their strategy. Should they remain in the city and defend the city from within? Or should they venture out of the city and meet the Quraysh in open battle? So Abdullah ibn Ubay ibn Salul, along with others, was of the view that they should remain within the city. The Prophet some of the Sahaba were of the opinion that they should go out of the city. Eventually, the Prophet decided to go out of the city and meet the Quraysh in open battle rather than adopt defensive positions from within the city. Abdullah ibn Ubay ibn Salul was again very bitter that the Prophet did not listen to him. He was used to being a man who was listened to. So, on the morning of the Battle of Uhud, Abdullah ibn Ubay ibn Salul, sorry, sorry, when they ventured out for the Battle of Uhud, Abdullah ibn Ubay ibn Salul had 300 men. Well, he had a number of men who were marching with him. He actually marched out of the center of the city and went towards Uhud, where they were about to meet, the Quraysh. Then Abdullah ibn Ubay ibn Salul turned around and he actually managed to convince his immediate followers as well as other, pe- other clans from the Khazraj, up to 300 people. So initially the Prophet wasallam set off with 1,000 men to face 3,000 of the Quraysh, but Abdullah ibn Ubay ibn Salul single-handedly managed to turn back 300 of them. And so... 300 returned to the city of Medina. The Prophet ﷺ was left only with a force of 700 to uh, battle against the Quraysh, four times as many, 3,000. So this shows how powerful, how influential Abdullah ibn Ubay ibn Salul was because he was one of the Khazraj clan leaders. And his position was very confusing because the Prophet ﷺ, on one occasion, on, uh, on occasion, some of the Sahaba عنهم, suggested to the Prophet وسلم, that we should go and attack these hypocrites. But the Prophet وسلم, said, No, I do not wish the Arabs to say that Muhammad has begun killing his own companions. So, because of this confusion, on the one hand, they lied, they appeared to be Muslim, on the other hand, they surreptitiously worked against. <laughs> The Prophet وسلم, and the Muslims, and this hypocrisy protected them. So, this was the background. So, the Prophet وسلم, said to, he, he accepted 
went at the suggestion that he should go out and meet Abdullah ibn Ubay ibn Salul. So the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam left his masjid along with a group of companions. And they went to meet Abdullah ibn Ubay ibn Salul where he was. And since he was a clan leader, he was a, he was a natural leader. He was surrounded by his... Uh, some of his cronies who were fellow hypocrites. And at the same time, there were other Muslims present who belonged to the Khazraj tribe. So when the Prophet ﷺ arrived, he was riding a donkey, a proper donkey. So Abdullah ibn Ubay ibn Salul spoke up and he actually said to the Prophet ﷺ, away with you, for, for the odour and the smell of your donkey has offended me. The smell of your donkey has overwhelmed me. So one of the Sahaba radiyallahu anhu who was with the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, he began abusing Abdullah ibn Ubay ibn Salul and said to him, by Allah, even the donkey of the Messenger sallallahu alayhi wa sallam is far better than you. So one of his cronies replied, and then the Prophet ﷺ was silent, and some of the. It, it then became the trading of insults, and not just that, but the two groups rose and they reverted to their traditional tribal rivalry between the Aus and the Khazraj. So the, some of the Khazrajis even though they were sincere Muslims, because they regarded the Khazraj as family, they stuck with their clan, clans. And, and then it became not a trading of insults or defending, defending Abdullah ibn Uway ibn Salul or defending the Prophet wasallam. It just reverted to the traditional Aus and Khazraj rivalry. And they began hurling insults at one another, arguing, then actually fighting with fists and sticks and beating one another. And then it took a while before the matter was resolved. I've explained before in the Hadith of Ifq how this can happen. If you recall... In the fifth year of Hijrah, when the Prophet ﷺ's noble wife, Umm al-Mu'mineen Aisha was accused of a major sin, even though she was innocent, the chief instigator was Abdullah ibn Ubay ibn Salul. And the Prophet ﷺ was very hurt by this, and he knew the innocence of his wife. He questioned her. He believed in her innocence. He then stood in the masjid, on the mimbar, and said, Who will assist me? Who will relieve me? Of this man, who has hurt me even in my family. So, one of the sahaba radiyallahu stood up, and said, Ya Rasulullah, tell, tell us who he is. For if he is one of us, we shall kill him, meaning the Aus. 
and if he is one of the Khazraj, then we shall deal with him if Khazraj do not deal with him. So then someone stood up from Khazraj and said, by Allah, you will not deal with him. And so Fathar al-Hayyan, the two tribes sprung up and they fired up against each other. So the original issue was about Umm al-Mu'mineen Aisha radiallahu anha. But again, it became an issue between the Aus and the Khazraj. It became a tribal issue. So members of the Aus, well, it, it, more was said. So when he said no, you will, that was Sa'd ibn Ubadah radiallahu anha. He said, you will not harm him if he is one of us. So another Sahabi radiallahu anhu stood up and said, You fall silent. For you are arguing and defending the hypocrites. So then the two tribes, the argument flared up between the two tribes. So much so that they actually drew swords in the masjid, were about to pounce on each other and engage in a physical altercation. I explained on that occasion, how was this possible? That in the masjid, in the masjid of Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, the Sahaba radiallahu anhum, once again divided into two groups, Aus and Khazraj, and were about to draw swords and battle in the masjid. I refer you to the recording of that, uh, of the commentary of that hadith, because I don't wish to digress. But this was to do with Abdullah ibn Ubay ibn Sarul again on that occasion. He was a chief instigator. But I explained then that there's a psychological explanation for this, which is that trauma, new trauma resurrects old trauma. And the Sahaba radiallahu anhum were in, a, were in a state of trauma because of what the Prophet wasallam was going through. And a perfect example is, imagine if we are struck by a tragedy in the family. It could be any tragedy. It could be a divorce. It could be bereavement. It could be someone becoming injured. It could be the loss of money. Now, sense dictates that at such times in bereavement, in grievous issues such as divorce, in a case of loss of money, in the case of someone becoming physically hurt, the family would come together and be very calm, be very patient, be very loving, caring and understanding. And yet, they do come together, but that coming together is often interspersed with moments of insanity where arguments take place, there is bickering. And one thinks that, how, are, how is the family arguing and bickering and fighting over minutiae and over trivial issues at such a critical moment? And the reason is everyone's old trauma is coming out and everything's being triggered. So it's not the issue at hand that's merely acting as a trigger. That trigger is bringing out all the underlying unresolved issues from the past. This is why people behave irrationally on such occasions. That's what happened with the Sahaba. They were in a very confused and traumatic state. 
All it needed was a trigger. And the trigger was the comment of one of the Khazraj, that you will not harm him if he is one of us. And that brought out the argument, the underlying trauma, the old unresolved disputes and issues. And everyone forgot what the original discussion was about, about Ummul Mu'mineen Aisha radiyallahu anha, about the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, and the old rivalries between the Khazraj and Aus fled. That's what happened on that occasion. This is what happened here as well. People forgot the original dispute, which was Abdullah ibn Ubayy ibn Salul's offensive comments about the Prophet And it became an issue between the Aus and the Khazraj. So they ended up fighting with one another. Eventually the matter was resolved. According to this narration of Bukhari as well as others, this was the background to the revelation of this verse. And if two groups of believers fight with one another, then what do you do? Then you reconcile the two warring, conflicting, battling parties. I'll continue with this after Salah, inshallah. Continuing with discussion from before Salah. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, وَإِن طَائِفَتَانِ مِنْ الْمُؤْمِنِينَ اقْتَتَلُوا فَأَصْلِحُوا بَيْنَهُمْ And if two groups of the believers fight with each other, then reconcile the two. As I was saying, conflict is an unfortunate and inevitable fact of life. So when such a dispute does arise, how should it be addressed? First of all, here Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, Iqtatilu actually fight with each other. Now, in the past, and even now, Muslims, even from the time of the Sahaba radiallahu anhum, have fought with each other in battles. And even at the beginning of Islam, we had civil wars in Islam. Sahaba radiallahu anhum fought with each other in, on a number of occasions. It's a tragedy, but it has happened and it does happen. So on such occasions, how should the matter be resolved? Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, فَأَصْلِحُوا بَيْنَهُمَا Reconcile the two. Other Muslims should not just sit back and spectate. They should make a genuine, sincere, and concerted effort to bring about peace, to end the conflicts and fighting, and to become involved with the hope of reconciling the two and resolving issues. Allah then says, فَإِنْبَغَتْ إِحْدَاهُمَا عَلَى الْأُخْرَى Then if one of the two parties transgresses against the other, 
فقاتلوا التي تبغي حتى تفيء إلى أمر الله then you fight with the one that is rebellious you fight against the one that is rebellious until it returns until it the party the group returns to the command of Allah now I must stress here that this is what, what I mean by the primary meaning of the verse if there is actual conflict in terms of battle and one group takes up arms against another group and they both take up arms against each other then the the group most responsible or the people most responsible for bringing about a resolution to the conflict and reconciliation between the two parties are the people who are in charge who are in authority those who have political and judicial legal authority and this is vital because Allah then says because they, they have the greatest authority in doing so, those in government, those with judicial, legal, political power and military power. Because Allah then says further, When this intervening body of people tries to reconcile the two parties and bring about a resolution to the conflict, and then if both of them accept so well, well, and so be it. But if one of them refuses to accept, does not make any attempt at reconciliation, or persists and remains intransigent, then they, would be, they will be regarded as the rebellious party. And if they continue to battle then they will now be regarded as rebellious. So those in authority should stop them by force. Prior to this, those in authority were trying to bring about a peaceful resolution and reconciliation between the two. But if the two parties do not accept, one of them does and the other doesn't, then that refusing party that remains persistent in its battle would be regarded as being rebellious and those in authority should now try to bring about peace and a resolution to the conflict by forcing them to the negotiating table or forcing them to lay down their arms this is a meaning of that you fight if one of them transgresses against the other then you fight against those who are transgressors until they return to the command of Allah. Once they agree to lay down their arms and accept negotiation and resolution, then those in authority should desist. And again Allah says, فَإِنْفَاءَتْ So if that group returns to the way of Allah, فَأَصْلِحُوا بَيْنَهُمَا Then Again, reconcile the two parties, bring about peace and a resolution to their conflict. As I said, this is a primary meaning of the verse in that the people tasked with this responsibility of ending the conflict, even by force, are those with legal, political, military and judicial powers. I emphasize that because the ulama agree people just can't take the law into their own hands. So if there are two groups fighting with each other, 
the meaning of the verse isn't that other Muslims should try to intervene and speak sense to both parties and bring about peace. And if the two parties don't listen, then the other Muslims who were non-combatants until this stage, they should now take up arms as well. لا حول ولا قوة إلا بالله That will lead to anarchy and lawlessness. So the primary meaning of the verse is only reserved for those who are in government, who have authority, legal, judicial, political and military authority. This is a primary meaning of the verse. And that's why Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, and once the, if one party refuses to listen, then those in authority can force them to lay down their arms. And that will be by military force. Once they do accept, and they lay, they lay down their arms and desist and cease hostilities, then Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, فَإِنْفَاءَتْ So if they do return to the command of Allah, Allah then again tasks those in authority too, فَأَصْلِحُوا بَيْنَهُمَا بِالْعَدْلِ You judge between them. بِالْعَدْلِ With justice. Do not hold the fact that you fought against them. Do not hold that fact against them. Be just. And I'll come back to this later. This is the primary meaning of the verse. The secondary meaning is, does it, well, before I explain the secondary meaning, the question is, well, does this verse then only concern, concern those who are in authority? No. The secondary meaning concerns all of us. And what's that secondary meaning? Is when two groups of people fight with each other. And I'm not talking about actual taking up of arms, but physical altercations, arguments, conflicts, disputes. When two groups of people fight with each other, what should other Muslims do? Should Muslims simply refuse to get involved and take a step back and spectate? Or throw up their arms and say, it's got nothing to do with me? No. Even the Prophet ﷺ set a perfect example. Whenever he learned of a dispute or a quarrel between two groups of people, and there were quarrels amongst the Sahaba عنهم, the Prophet ﷺ would go out of his way to intervene and bring about peace between the two parties by talking to both of them, by calming both parties down. I remember Allahu Akbar. If, if someone is sincere and they have the wisdom and the tact, it can be done. You may recall a story I related from my father about one of his teachers who exercised such taqwa He's passed on, both of them have passed on, may Allah rahmah on both of them. But this teacher of his, he once told me that he is so reliant on Allah, he has such tawakkul and taqwa, that his family members, the extended family, they hurt him a lot. As is typical in our culture, there were, there were arranged marriages between his children and his daughters and another family. 
they, his daughters were divorced and abandoned. And to add insult to injury, the same family also appropriated their wealth, so took their lands and occupied their homes. Not the homes, but the land. in their native country. And despite all of that, every Ramadan, this teacher of my father's, he would send money back home to that same family. So my father, who was very soft, but even he, despite his softness, was taken aback by this generosity in the face of such hostility. He said to his teacher that they've done this to you, they've done that to you, they've done this to you, they've done that to your family, to your daughters. And after all of that, you still send money back home to the same family. And his reply was that what they have done to me is between them and Allah. But I still have to abide by the command of Allah of Silatul Rahim. Of bonding the ties of blood. So I do my duty. Now that same teacher, I was a child, I was 16 years old. And I was with my father and that teacher. On an, uh, on, and one of my uncles, there was just four of us. I was only 16 years old, but I was with them uh, in India. And we were travelling through Bombay. And we're just walking. And I witnessed miracles at the hands of that teacher, my father's teacher. In just three days, what a whole group of people couldn't do, he single-handedly managed. And one of the occasions was that we were walking. And suddenly we came across a, it's a crowded place anyway, but we came across a huge crowd, possibly, of five, six hundred people. And the traffic had stopped. There were no police to be seen. But the traffic had stopped and there, were, there was a huge throng of people. So, we were stuck. And as we drew closer to the crowd, it it was very clear that there were two groups of people fighting. In fact, there were just two individuals. But with the two individuals, there were other groups. There was, a, there was another group. So there were two groups of people fighting. And there were people holding others back. And it looked like a typical Bollywood movie where there were threats and I'll do this and I'll do that. And Khairan. But there was a huge scope for violence. And... My father actually said, I, I actually said, I was a young, naive, 16-year-old child, so I said, why doesn't anyone stop it? And my father said, Shh, don't get involved. Uh, we can't get involved. Because this was a huge crowd, and it, it wasn't necessarily people of the same faith, it was just a huge crowd in uh, a large city. And this, this teacher of my father, amazing. In that whole crowd, others said, we've tried, but they're not listening. 
And indeed, they were holding people back. They were threatening to kill each other. I don't know. He had magic in his tongue. And the Prophet ﷺ says in a hadith, إِنَّ مِنَ الْبَيَانِ لَسِحْرًا That some speech is sorcery. He walked over. And another question that we asked from the other onlookers who were there from long before. So how long has this been going on for? This is a good half an hour, 45 minutes. Allah knows what he did or what he said. He walked over to both groups. And I, this is a Qur'an in front of me. I saw it with my own eyes. And this is why I said I witnessed miracles. Allah knows what he said. But in two minutes, he actually got the two parties shaking hands. They were actually shaking hands. And that was just one of the incidents that I witnessed over three days. So, taqwa does a lot. I remember humorously, he once told me, that um, there's a very large organization and there was a multimillionaire who was one of the heads of that organization. But this multimillionaire, he would give grief to certain people. So this father's teacher told me that If you ever need my help in talking to him, then by all means, just tell me and I'll speak to him. If there's any problem, because I was involved with that organization. And then I said, why? And he said, just if you ever need my help in relation to talking to him, if he ever bothers you or bothers anyone who's connected to you, then just talk to me. So I said, why? Because the manner in which he said that. So he told me a long story. He said once, this multimillionaire, Allah had blessed him with so much wealth, but he was suffering from some medical condition of constant headaches, persistent, 24 hours. He couldn't eat, drink, or sleep. And he was called, he had been to private medical doctors, no one could help him. So then he turned to some of our herbal healers. And he's paying them silly money. And they're coming, fleecing him of his wealth, and he was blessed with millions. But he couldn't sleep, he couldn't eat, he couldn't rest, couldn't do anything. And one after the other, they all came, took his money, but nobody could make an iota of difference. And then eventually someone told him, that if you want the problem solved, call this scholar, my father's teacher. So he was desperate. He would try anything. So he called. He knew him, but he never knew that he could help him in this way. So he called him. When he called him, he said to him that I'll give you a blank check. I'll give you any money you want. Solve my problem for me. So my father's teacher sat down and he said, look... I'll, I'll try to help you. Shifa is in the hands of Allah. I'll try to help you. But 
I will not accept a penny from you. And he was very poor. He lived a life of simplicity. Once we visited him, and for years he had been living in that house, and we entered and there was not a single item of furniture in the front room, not a single one. We just sat on the carpets. Years later, I visited him again. Again, we just sat on the carpet. And yet, he was so hospitable. So he said to this multimillionaire with a headache, he said to him, I'll try to help you. Shifa is in the hands of Allah, but on one condition, you do not, I will not accept a penny in payment from you. So fine. He sat there, he read some Quran, he read some du'as, he did some ruqya. And Allahu Akbar, the individual just sprang up from his bed with the headache gone, completely, <laughs> never to return. So he related the story to me and then he said, he laughed and then he said, this is why I'm telling you. He treated me like his child. He said, this is why I'm telling you that if he ever bothers you, just let me know. Because if I'm involved, he will never bother anyone. So I said, why? He said, because he knows that if he ever bothers me, his headache will come back. <laughs> so, this is what taqwa does. Taqwa. Reliance on Allah and taqwa. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala put shifa on his tongue. Dua on his tongue, in his hand. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala put the ability to bring about peace in him. And I witnessed this for myself. In two minutes, he had two fighting parties shaking each other's hands, even though crowds of hundreds, a crowd of hundreds couldn't achieve it over 45 minutes. So Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, if there are two groups fighting with each other, what should believers do? Stand on the sidelines and spectate? No. They should become involved and try to bring about peace, resolution to their dispute and reconciliation between their hearts. The Prophet ﷺ demonstrated that. And this is why I said and I mentioned his story. If one is sincere, if one is sincere, then Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala through the barakah of that sincerity will bring about peace. This is why Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala even says that if there is conflict in marriage, there are many stages to be covered, but one of the stages is min ahlihi wa min Send a representative from his family and an adjudicator from her family. Hakam. Send an arbitrator from his family and an arbitrator from her family. So that they can come together and try to resolve these marital differences and disputes. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, إِنْ يُرِيدَ إِسْلَاحٍ يُوَفِّقِ اللَّهُ بَيْنَهُمَا If they both seek reconciliation, i.e. the two arbitrators, if they are both sincere, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala will bring about peace between them. So imagine through the barakah of the arbitration, through the barakah 
of the sincerity of the arbitrators, one from each family, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala will bring about reconciliation, love and harmony between husband and wife, despite their quarrel. This is what sincerity does. So people should try to become involved sincerely, but it requires wisdom. It does require wisdom. People can't just charge in. And this is a secondary meaning of the verse. If there are quarrelling, fighting parties, then we should try to bring about peace between them. However, if both parties do not listen, or one of them does not listen, then we can't do anything further. And there are many details about what should be done, what should be said, how it should be done, how it should be said, but we don't have time for that. But the important thing is, we cannot just take a step back. This is why the Prophet ﷺ says in a hadith, related by Imam Bukhari and others, Unsur kana Help your brother, your brother, regardless of whether he is the dhalim, the wrongdoer, or the mazloom, the one suffering the injustice. Help your brother, irrespective of whether he is a perpetrator of injustice, or whether he is a victim of injustice. So the Sahaba radiallahu anhum said, Ya Rasulullah, we can understand helping the oppressed, helping our brother if he is the victim of injustice, but how do we help the dhalim, the wrongdoer, the perpetrator of injustice himself? Prophet wasallam said, you stay his hand. You stop him from his injustice. By doing so, you will be helping him. The sad fact is, there are so many occasions when a suffering mudloom, someone who is a victim of gross injustice, actually turns to us for help. And what do we do? We refuse to get involved. Because we wish to be diplomats. We don't wish to stand up for the truth and justice. We wish to be in the good books of everyone. We wish to please everybody, everyone. And this is one of the traits of hypocrisy. Because what happens when you try to please everyone? You end up being dishonest, you end up lying. You hardly ever speak the truth. Because you can't, if one group comes to you and says, these are our grievances, and you tell them exactly what they want to hear. Another group comes and you tell them exactly what they want to hear. Another third group comes and you tell them exactly what they want to hear. And we do that in the hope of being in everyone's good books. You know what we end up doing? We end up being in no one's good books because no one trusts us. And this is what I mean by we end up being like the hypocrites. So this is a trait of hypocrisy. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, about the hypocrites, they try to deceive Allah, whereas Allah is the one who is keeping them in error. When they stand up for prayer, they do so lazily. merely to show the people. And they do not remember Allah except very little. لا إله ولا إله they hover in between this. Neither are they with these people, nor are they with those people. 
That's me. These are the hypocrites. La ilaha ulai wa la ilaha Neither are they with this group of people, nor are they with this group of people. No one trusts them. And this is why Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says we must stand up for the truth and justice. Even if it means offending people. We wish to offend no one. In the hope, that doesn't mean that we should resort to gratuitous offence. No. Rather, in speaking the truth, in standing up for the truth, in speaking justly, we should not fear offence. If someone is oppressed, someone is a victim of injustice, someone needs help, there are two people, one is oppressing the other, the one who is being oppressed approaches us. And it could be to do with anything, a neighbourly dispute, a marital dispute, a family dispute, a military dispute. We need to have the courage, the knowledge, the wisdom, the uprightness, the manliness, the decency, man or woman, to say to the person that you are wrong, no matter what they mean to us. And this is why Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, Ya ayyuhalladheena kunu amanu, Ya ayyuhalladheena amanu, كُونُوا قَوَّامِينَ لِلَّهِ شُهَدَاءَ بِالْقِسْتِ O believers, be upright for the sake of Allah, witnesses and bearers of justice. In another verse, يَا أَيُّهَا الَّذِينَ آمَنُوا كُونُوا قَوَّامِينَ بِالْقِسْتِ شُهَدَاءَ لِلَّهِ O believers, be upholders of justice, Witnesses for the sake of Allah. Even though this testimony may be against yourselves or your parents or even your own relatives. So Allah has told us to be just. And part of that justice is we help those who are perpetrators of injustice as well as the victims of injustice. How do we help the perpetrators of injustice? We bid them to stop. We speak the truth to them. That's why the Prophet wasallam said, Help your brother, regardless of whether he is a perpetrator of injustice or the victim of injustice. We can't just stand on the sidelines and spectate. Because tomorrow... If ever we are in that position, whereby we are wronged and we are unable to do anything for ourselves and we seek help from others, how will we feel when we approach them and they ignore us? Or they tell us what we want to hear and they go to the other party and tell them what they want to hear. So the verse tells us that if two groups of people are fighting between themselves, it's a command, bring about peace, bring about reconciliation between them. Abu Bakr Siddiq brought about reconciliation between his own daughter and the Prophet She said something, Abu Bakr radiallahu, Abu Bakr radiallahu an came, and he went for her. Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa came in between, even though they were arguing. 
or not oh, the Prophet Sallallahu wouldn't argue, but she said something which displeased him, and Abu Bakr and went for his daughter. Prophet Sallallahu came in between. And then afterwards, the matter was resolved. Abu Bakr and visited them later, and the Prophet Sallallahu and Umm Mu'mineen Aisha anha were happily conversing with one another. So the Prophet Abu Bakr said to them, Include me in your peace now, just as you included me in your war earlier on. So, include me in your peace, just as you included me in your war. So Abu Bakr intervened between husband and wife. But mind you, he was a father, he was in a position to do so. This verse does not invite any busybody to become involved with anyone and everyone. There are, like I said, there are etiquettes, there are rules. There are occasions. But as a general principle, we should not simply be standby spectators. We should sincerely try to bring about peace and reconciliation between differing peoples. And again, the primary meaning of the verse is restricted to those in government, in authority. This is no suggestion that anyone should take the law into their own hands. As I said, I'll come back to the point that even those in command, even those in government, in authority, if they have forced one party to lay down their arms and then brought both warring parties to the table, Allah says, Reconcile the two parties with justice. Allah repeats again, and be just. Inna Allah yuhibbul muqsiteen. Indeed, Allah loves those who are just. Justice is one of the hallmarks of the teachings of Islam. And this means everyone has to be just. Not just the, those in legal authority. The, just, the command for justice is not just for rulers or for judges, but rather it's for every single one of us. We have to be just in our family. Spouses have to be just with one another. Parents have to be just between their children. Rulers have to be just with their subjects. Employers have to be just with their employees. We have to be just with every single person to the extent that we have to be just with ourselves. If we are wrong, we have to accept that we are. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says in the Quran, even though this testimony may be against yourselves. And this is why the, word, the, the meaning of the hadith, assist your brother, regardless of whether he is the perpetrator of injustice or the victim of injustice. The Prophet overturned a centuries-old ancient belief of the Arabs. And do you know what that was? The Arabs believed in tribal loyalty. And this persists in us, this tribal mentality. So the Arabs had a similar understanding that you should always help your brother, always help your own. That means whether they are right or wrong. As long as he's a member of your family, your clan, or your tribe, you stick up for your own, even if they are wrong. And that's what the Arabs would do. 
So, regardless of what happened, if he belongs to our clan, we have to stand for him. We have to defend him. So the Prophet ﷺ overturned this centuries-old traditional mentality of the Arabs by saying, indeed, you should help your brother, regardless of whether he is a victim or the perpetrator. But how? Not in the old traditional tribal way, which is you stand up for him regardless. No, in the Islamic way, which is you bring about peace, you ensure that the victim is helped back to his feet and protected, and the perpetrator of injustice is stopped. If you have any influence over him, because he is your fellow tribesman, then you should do your duty and use your influence to bring about good, not help him further in sin. This is, the, this is justice in Islam, and there are so many verses, so many hadith about justice. Allahu Akbar. Quite simply, I've spoken on justice before. Quite simply, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has established or Allah has created the heavens and the earth and the entire universe with justice and with balance. If there is any disruption to that balance, heaven and earth will perish and there will be anarchy and chaos in the cosmos. Similarly, that's what the beginning verses of Ar-Rahman speak of. Similarly, if there is injustice, if there is any disruption to the balance of justice in the world or in any situation, at any time or on any occasion, there will be anarchy, there will be facade, that pe- people and lives will perish. This is why justice is so important, and we must speak the truth when it comes to justice. This is why in one of the verses, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, what in, uh, regarding justice, وَإِن تَلْوُوا أَوْ this is actually the ending of the verse which I mentioned earlier about being just regardless. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, And if you twist and turn, then indeed Allah knows very well what you are doing. What does that verse mean? What do these words mean? It's actually to do with this situation. If, some, if there are two differing people, they need help. One of them needs your help and pleads with you, approaches you and requests you to help, to bring about peace, bring about reconciliation. And what do you do? You do not stand up for justice. But what do you do? You twist and turn. We twist, we turn, we make excuses. We might get away. We might get away with our act on earth. But Allah says, Indeed, Allah knows exactly what you are doing. That you are merely making excuses and twisting and turning and shirking your responsibility of being just. You may deceive others, but Allah knows exactly what you are doing. So here again, even those in power, in authority, they should never hold these people's rebellion against them in any way whatsoever. Even though they have been rebels, even though they have fought against them, and even though they have had to force them to lay down their arms, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, despite that, you reconcile the two with justice. Be just indeed. Allah loves those who are just. 
Then the next verse, and I'll quickly end, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, Believers are only brothers amongst themselves. Therefore bring about peace between your two warring brothers. And be wary of Allah in the hope that you may receive mercy. Now, two things I'd like to mention before we end, which is remarkable. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says about two groups of people who are fighting with each other with the intention of hurting one another, maiming each other, and possibly even killing one another. That despite this, Allah calls them minal mu'mineen. If two groups of the mu'mineen fight with each other, despite this, they are still believers. They are still mu'mineen. And here again, the verse is connected. Despite their quarrels, their disagreements, their fighting with one another, Allah says they are still brothers. So when you bring about peace, don't think that you're bringing about peace between rebels and non-rebels or two warring parties or two belligerents. Rather, you bring about peace between your two warring brothers. They are brothers. And it's a fact. Family is family. People fight, even amongst families. But their fighting, their quarrelling, does not negate the fact that they are blood brothers and sisters, blood siblings. No one can negate family. Similarly, we belong to a wider family. And believers are brothers. And I'll say more about this on the next occasion. But there are many beautiful hadith which speak about the brotherhood of Muslims. Believers are only brothers. In one hadith, Al-Muslim or Akhul Muslim. La yadlimuhu wa la yuslimuhu. Related by Imam Bukhari, Imam Muslim and others. A Muslim is a brother of a Muslim. La yadlimuhu. He does not oppress him or wrong him. It doesn't just mean oppression. It means he does not wrong him. Wa la we don't just stop there. The Prophet ﷺ said, A Muslim is the brother of a Muslim. <coughs> he does not wrong him or oppress him. What does he say after that? And nor does he hand him over. Nor does he submit him. Nor does he abandon him. That's the meaning of handing him over. Handing him over means that he doesn't leave him to his fate. So in Islam, it's not a question of, okay, as long as I'm not doing anything wrong to him, that's fine. No. A Muslim is a brother of a Muslim. You don't just not wrong him, not suppress him, not hurt him. But you protect him. You do not leave him. You do not abandon him. If you are not hurting him but someone else is, then you cannot leave him to his fate. Then you have failed. You have failed to treat him as a brother. Al-Muslim wa akhul Muslim. Muslim is a brother of Muslim. He does not oppress him or hurt him or wrong him, nor does he abandon him. And there are many other hadith. In one hadith later, again by Imam Bukhari, Imam Muslim, from Anas radiyallahu anhu, the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam says, La yu'minu ahadukum hatta yuhibba li akhihi ma yuhibbu li nafsih. One of you cannot be a true believer until he loves for his brother that which he loves for himself. 
What you want, desire the same thing for your brother. This is a beautiful recipe for contentment. If you want to rid yourself of envy, of hasad, and you want to feel happy and content, regardless of your lot or other people's lot, then this hadith is a beautiful remedy. Wish the best for others. Desire for others that which you desire for yourself. And you will be clean of envy, of hasad. And you will feel better for it. You'll sleep better as well. Why should you destroy your akhirah because of someone else's dunya? That's what hasad does. One poet says, لِلَّهِ دَرُّ الْحَسَدْ مَا أَعْدَلَ بَدَأَ بِصَاحِبِهِ فَقَتَلَهِ that to Allah belongs a marvel of envy. How just is envy? We aren't just, but envy is. We are not just, but envy is. So the poet says, That to Allah belongs a marvel of envy. How just is envy? What does it do? Envy begins with the envy and kills him. It doesn't hurt anyone else, it kills him. So if someone's envious of another person's house or car or... And I give these examples because this is exactly what we envy us of. What we should be envious of, as the Prophet ﷺ says in a hadith related to Imam Bukhari and Imam Muslim, There should be no envy except in two people. A man to whom Allah has given knowledge, in one narration, Qur'an, in another narration, knowledge. So with that knowledge, with that Qur'an, he recites the Qur'an. With that knowledge, he judges, he teaches. And the other person is someone whom Allah has blessed with wealth, and he fears Allah in that wealth. And he spends it in the way of Allah in charity. So the first person, others look at him and say, I wish I could have the Qur'an as he has the Qur'an, or I wish as he, I could have the ilm that he has. And not for the sake of the dunya or the other person, I wish I had the same wealth, so that if I had the same wealth, I would do exactly as he does, which is spend in the way of Allah. So if ever we should be envious, we should only be envious of charity, of Qur'an, of sincere, sacred knowledge. But we are envious, not of the Qur'an. We are not envious of the ilm of Allah, that given by Allah, and is it us, uh, the ilm of Allah. We are not envious of noble charity. What we are envious of is people traditionally, they were envious of camels and cattle, horses and goats and donkeys. That's what they were. We're envious of the same thing. The, our cars. They had four legs, these are four wheels. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says of them in the Qur'an, That the love of these things, verses long, I won't mention everything, has been ingrained in the hearts of men. Of what? The love of? Hordes of gold and silver. And, وَالْخَيْلِ الْمُسَوَّمَةِ And branded horses. Branded horses. 
So they were four-legged horses, and people were envious of branded horses, and we are envious of branded, badged, four-legged cars. That's what we're envious of. SubhanAllah, we should be envious of the Qur'an, of ilm, of charity. And instead we are envious of cars, homes. Things that will perish, that will live on long, subhanAllah. You know, these branded cars, they will outlive us. We will go to the graveyard before some of them go to the scrapyard. We will go to the graveyard before some of these cars may go to the, grave, uh, to the scrapyard. They may outlive us. And the homes will surely outlive us. They will be occupied by others. Ali radiyallahu stood over some graves and said to them I shall tell you our news and then you tell me your news our news is that your children have squabbled after you in the inheritance that you left them and your women have married other, other men and your homes have been occupied by other people. This is what we have to tell you. Now tell us, what do you have to tell us? That's a reality of life. So what should we be envious of? The Qur'an, the ilm, instead of we're envious of these things. So envy kills a person before anyone else. He's enjoying his car, his home, his wealth, his belongings. And we are losing sleep over his wealth. He's not the one losing sleep, we are. So this is why the poet says, how just is envy, it kills the envier before anyone else. So, anyway, going back to what I was saying, believers are brothers amongst themselves. And Prophet wasallam says, a believer, a Muslim, is a brother of a Muslim. And Anas radiallahu says, One of you does not believe until he desires for his brother that which he desires for himself. This is why I started talking about envy. This is the cure for envy. Wish for others what you wish for yourself. And as I said, you will sleep better. You won't lose sleep. You will sleep better. And I'll end with one final hadith which actually says a lot about all of this. Again related by Imam Bukhari and Imam Muslim. And I'll speak about brotherhood on the next, uh, in the next uh, lesson. But the Prophet wasallam says in this very beautiful hadith related by Imam Bukhari and Imam Muslim. He says, إِيَّاكُمْ وَالظَّنَّ فَإِنَّ الظَّنَّ أَكْذَبُ الْحَدِيثِ وَلَا تَحَسَّسُوا وَلَا تَجَسَّسُوا وَلَا تَنَاجِشُوا وَلَا تَحَاسَدُوا وَلَا تَبَاغَضُوا وَلَا تَدَابَرُوا وَكُونُوا عِبَادَ اللَّهِ إِخْوَانًا Prophet says, Beware of suspicion, for suspicion is the greatest lie. And do not eavesdrop on one another. وَلَا تَحَسَّسُوا وَلَا تَجَسَّسُوا And do not, sir, do not spy on one وَلَا تَنَاجَشُوا Sorry. وَلَا تَنَاجَشُوا And do not try to outbid one another maliciously. وَلَا تَحَاسَدُوا 
And do not be envious of one another. Wala tabaghatu. And do not hate one another. Wala tadabru. And do not turn your backs to one another. Wakunu ibadallahi ikhwana. And be the servants of Allah as brothers. I end with this. Wa sallallahu wa sallam ala abdihi wa rasulihi nabiyyina Muhammad wa ala alihi wa sahbihi ajma'in. Subhanakallahumma bihamdik nashidu wa la ilaha illa anta nastaghfiraku wa natubu ilayka.